the whole power of blockchain, of NFTs, and of Web3 is all about disruption, transparency, democratization, and accessibility. So we've gone from a corporation-first environment. Right now, we're moving to community-first. And that's taking power back into the hands of people. And that, more than anything else, is what's driving me and what gets me excited each and every day, that the power of technology is now in the hands of community. Welcome to the Will and Lee Show. Hi, this is Will Chang. And as always, I have my co-hosts, Lee Chang and Andrew Su with me. Hey, excited to be here. It's an honor. Today, we have Teddy Z with us. Teddy is the co-founder of Mint NFT. Mint NFT is the first NFT collaboration platform that empowers and protects brands, artists, and communities. Mint NFT recently launched the Balmain and Barbie high fashion NFT auction. After graduating from Harvard Business School, Teddy built a storied career as one of the first Asian American executives in Hollywood. First as the executive vice president of production at Columbia Pictures, then as the executive producer for films such as The Pursuit of Happiness, Hitch, and Saving Face. He's an advisor for a multitude of companies, including SM Entertainment, the Korean entertainment company responsible for K-pop groups like EXO, Super Junior, and Girls' Generation, and Smart Study, responsible for Pink Fong and Baby Shark. Welcome, Teddy. Thank you. Thank you. Excited to be here. So, Teddy, you don't know this, but when I was in college 15 years ago, you actually meant a lot to me. Asian American representation wasn't what it was today. And Saving Face, a movie that you produced about a Chinese-American lesbian couple, was one of my first DVDs. And I actually went to an Asian-American film festival just to watch West 32nd, another movie you produced starring John Cho and Grace Park. What inspired you to go into Hollywood in the first place? My parents were Chinese immigrants, very poor, barely spoke English. And all they wanted was to come here and get their kids educated and they also wanted us all to fit in. But it was really hard growing up as a Chinese-American kid in a predominantly white area. And I don't think people made it particularly difficult for me. I just felt like a fish out of water. I never felt like I belonged. I looked different. I ate different food. And my parents were certainly different. But the way I learned about American culture and the way I learned to travel the world and open my eyes was through television and film. I was an addict and I still am. I consume so much content, even while I'm working, it's either TV, music or film, and there's always something going on. So for me, I learned how to be an American by watching television. And I don't think it was necessarily my decision. I think it was my destiny to find a way to Hollywood. My dad worked as a salad maker in a kitchen in the Catskill Mountains, the resorts in this Jewish resort hotel northwest of New York City. And his union offered a scholarship that I won. And it was a full ride to Cornell University to the School of Industrial and Labor Relations. And after I graduated, I got a job, one job offer in New York City. The rest, a seven or eight were all around the country. And I picked New York and that job was with NBC. 
And it was startling because NBC was so profound in shaping my views and my taste. And they transferred me to LA and I met the president. I said, your job is to create one third of all primetime shows in America. That's mind blowing. I only thought about consumption, never production. And I asked him how he got this job. And he went on and on, but all I heard was, I went to Harvard Business School. So of course I applied to Harvard Business School and I was so lucky to get in. I suffered through two years of academic life against people who ended up on Wall Street or at McKinsey. And all I wanted to do was to get into the entertainment business. I came back out and I knocked on his door and I said, here I am. And he said, wait, who are you again? And I said, you told me two years ago that if I went to Harvard Business School, I could have a job like yours. And he said, I didn't tell you that. That's what you wanted to hear. I said, I went to Harvard Business School. But again, it didn't matter. It brought me to Hollywood. And shortly thereafter, through some hustle and desire, I was able to land a job at Paramount Pictures as a creative executive. My first job in Hollywood, I had a parking space with my name on it and an expense account and an assistant. So you asked me a quick question. That's the long story. I just ended up here and it was by force of nature, not my nature, but everything around me. It's an amazing story. You got into Hollywood and you started building your career. You, you started getting promoted and eventually you started to run production at a big studio. What caused you to start producing your own movies, especially around Asian American film? Well, first, let me correct you. I didn't run any studios. I was a player, a cog in the wheel, a piece on the board. Everybody always reports to somebody. That's just life in Hollywood and in most companies, in any company. So it's very competitive. It's very lonely. It's a situation where you, it's up or out. And I know there were tons of people more hungry and more gifted than me. And so I'd like to tell you a fairy tale story about how smart I was and how I knew what I wanted to do. A lot of times you're not in control. And a lot of things conspired to move me from what I was doing into the role of running a production company. And it all worked out to my advantage, but I'd be completely lying if I said I had it all engineered. And the truth of the matter is, it was probably, I was never going to get the top job at a studio. I mean, think of it. I left the studios as an executive, I think in 1997. I could count on one hand how many other Asians were in creative positions. I just didn't see the writing on the wall that said I was going to be the CEO or the president of a major Hollywood studio. And that's the God's honest truth. Was becoming a CEO your goal the whole time? No, not at all. My goal and it's easy to look back on it and realize that having a goal that's a title or a salary or a position, once you get it, it doesn't fill you the way you think it's supposed to fill you. And I'll tell you, 
that's what's driven my entire life has always been being productive, being at the forefront of trends, being able to be in the middle of pop culture, and more importantly, finding my purpose and my place and where I fit in, in a changing future. And so I've had three, four different lives, I feel like, because the world has changed so quickly. And I've been fortunate to be caught up in that wave and been placed in situations where, wow, right in the middle of incredible disruption. When I came to Hollywood, a theatrical domestic business accounted for 80 to 90% of everything. Uh, multiplexes weren't even here yet. VHS just coming out. So Hollywood was just on the rise and I was able to capture the benefit of a lot of that. When I ended up leaving to go to China and to start a company doing East-West productions, China co-productions, I just thought that this was the age of Asia rising. And it was really exciting to see the development of China up front. And I was very fortunate to have made a lot of relationships. And certainly being Chinese helped. Not being able to speak Chinese well did not help. <laughs> but being able to speak Hollywood was the big difference maker. So then I migrated into this whole tech area. And to be on the rise of Silicon Beach in LA and the rise of these global tech companies is really tremendous. I've been a part of the AI wave and big data and digital media. And now, wow, to be a part of NFTs, blockchain and Web3, I'm not saying I'm the driver of it, but I'm pretty lucky to be at the right place at the right time. How have you honed your ability to kind of notice where the trends are going, but also honing your own internal kind of compass to make those decisions? Wow, that's a really great question. I think I've always described myself as a heat-seeking missile, always being uh, the guy on the outside or feeling like the guy who didn't fit in. I was always observing everything. So rather than being an active participant in everything, I felt like I was always observing. And a funny story I tell is, you know, I married a Korean woman. I grew up in a home where communicating with my parents was a challenge. In my second marriage, I married a Korean woman where her family, by and large, doesn't speak English. I do business with a lot of Korean companies, a lot of Chinese companies, a lot of foreign companies. And communication is so difficult. But for me, it's been really comfortable because I've spent so much time of my life observing and being able to try to communicate and storytelling in a way that closes the gap between people. So I think it's the power of observation and always being interested in the new trends that have made my life pretty fortunate to be in the right place. What were you seeing with Web3 that made you excited to jump into the space? I want to back up and say, first, as an underdog, I'm always rooting for the underdog. And even though I've been involved with a lot of big brands, I'm a union guy. I'm an underdog guy. I'm always trying to put myself out there to help the underdog. We have gone through a period, a decade or more, where it's corporation first, 
giant globalization is taking place. And politics have just driven to this place where many people in politics are putting corporations above people, corporate rights above human rights. And that's just mind-blowing. And for me, the whole power of blockchain, of NFTs, and of Web3 is all about disruption, transparency, democratization, and accessibility. So we've gone from a corporation-first environment. Right now, we're moving to community-first. And that's taking power back into the hands of people. And that, more than anything else, is what's driving me and what gets me excited each and every day that the power of technology is now in the hands of community. So you've been involved in big brands in your previous career and Mint NFT is bringing on or on-ramping a lot of these big brands, right? And so how do you think about brands coming onto Web3 and how do you even convince them to get into the space? There's so much FOMO in our world and companies and brands are not immune to the fear of missing out. And so many companies and so many brands have seen the power of disruption through the internet and digital media. And the smart brands are trying to become the early adopters where they can learn and share. And the key to it is that a lot of these companies have built up a lot of brand equity and a huge followings. And now it's time to start giving back and sharing and having this equitable arrangement where your fans aren't sold to, they become partners, they become co-marketers, they become your evangelizers, and they have the financial incentive to do that. So I think that the smart brands are the ones who are staying innovative and they're best serving and engaging with their customers and their fans. And they're doing it. Engagement is not being preached to or sold to. It's a two-way street and where the rules are written out in smart contracts and where the crowd and the fan and the community gets to participate and they know what they're getting. So before we go further, actually, Teddy, can you tell us a bit about what Mint NFT is and how you got involved? Sure. Mint NFT is really a marketplace a platform really that tries to make the NFT experience simple, safe, and social. The whole world of NFTs is supposed to be democratizing and transparent. But the truth of the matter is a lot of these communities that have grown up around NFTs and have done an incredible job, they've built up the same kind of walls that many major corporations have. They've blocked off access. They've created their own lingo and language. And there's so much friction in buying cryptocurrency, of transferring it, of establishing a MetaMask wallet, going through KYC. All that is just mind-blowing how difficult it is. So no wonder people, they scratch their head and they end up giving up. And a lot of people are frozen with anxiety and paralyzed. So our whole goal, again, is to make it simple, safe, and social. So I'll talk first about simple, the idea of establishing a wallet and learning enough about NFTs to actually venture in that space. Well, we believe that it's the content first 
if you remember back to VHS versus Betamax or laser discs, uh, what were we really caring about? Do you care about the technology that delivers the content or do you care about the content? Well, for me as a content person, as a story person, none of the technology really mattered. It just made things easier, right? So well, that's what we're trying to do. Let's shift the focus in on reducing the friction, onboarding people to the experience, letting them learn along the way. I often talk about when you get on an airplane to go from New York to LA, do you have to understand everything about aerodynamics before you get on that plane? No, you just have a purpose behind it. You want to get from New York to LA. When I go in and I don't need to understand all the ins and outs of what an NFT is, I just want to collect a Barbie outfit designed by Balmain. And by doing that, we end up setting up, uh, the first thing we do is we have a live virtual event. Well, if somebody actually signs up for that event, they're signing up for an account. By signing up for an account, we are going to give them a free NFT and establish a wallet for them. And when they do show up with the account, that voila, they're already owners of NFTs. They've already proven that they are interested in this brand. They want to have a relationship with this brand. And this free NFT becomes the cornerstone for the company to continue engaging with them, offering them benefits, rewards, perks, and feedback. So it's such a simple way to start out the relationship. So many NFT companies, people fear, are money grabs. Right. How horrible would it be if somebody offered you a free NFT and over time it brought great value? Can you imagine if I got something free and a year later it was worth some serious money? I would learn everything I could about the NFT experience. So that's step one. Step two, video. Video, when you go to a movie, oftentimes you have to see a trailer first, a teaser. You see a glimpse of what that movie is, who's in it, who made it, what's involved and what's the story. Most of the times NFTs are one-dimensional, two-dimensional pieces of digital content. Imagine having a video, a trailer, if you will, telling the story, the unspoken word of that NFT. Who's behind it? What was the process that went into it? Who else participated, right? We take that video, we premiere it at that live virtual event, and then we attach it to the NFT permanently. Every time that NFT trades in a secondary market, you have a built-in marketing asset, a trailer promoting that NFT and the story. That's number one. But number two, even more important, it's a level, added level of credibility and authenticity and provenance. When people see the president of Mattel and the CMO of Balmont talking at the event about the NFT, you know it's legitimate. When you have Olivier, the creative director of Balmont, sharing in the video his inspiration for creating that. You know it's the real deal. And then it's validated in the smart contract and the underlying rights 
So we are trying to bring some semblance of order and brand safety and authenticity, which of course serves the brands. But as a buyer, you want to know you're getting the real thing too. So those are the things that we do. We also want to gamify the experience of owning an NFT. And we're in the process of adding a score, which measures all kinds of the activity that you might engage with in social media with your NFT. So those are the three steps. The live event helps to make it simple and onboard people into the world of NFTs. The video helps to make it not only more enjoyable, but also safer because you feel like it's authentic. And the social score really incentivizes everybody to be on the same page and promote the same message. Yeah. I love how you have thought through a lot of different aspects that have made this space just a bit daunting for a lot of people. I think onboarding is a huge issue. And I love your analogy with airplane because people want to get on this train. And most importantly is that they find an easy way for access first. And like you said, if they have the interest and the passion, eventually you can go back and do your digging. I think in that way, you're bringing on a huge demographic of people that are interested, but perhaps were a bit scared and weren't sure about how to actually join the party. And I love how you're working between both fashion designer and also with a legitimate corporation that lends credibility to the platform. And in that way also is going to lend more confidence in the consumer. So I really like how you guys have really thought through, you know, all the different elements in creating the platform. The most important thing is how each party looks at NFTs. So from a brand, there are some brands that are all about deeper engagement with their consumer. So we offer this as a marketing channel that's complementary to whatever channels that already exist. Right. So once we position it in something that they already understand, it's a lot easier to adopt. Right. Right. From a user standpoint, if we focus on the consumer behavior, they're already engaged in. Hey, I go to events. I share on social media. I watch video. I collect stuff that takes away all the stigma and the friction from that experience. Let me also add that the whole video provenance that I described and the social score are all we've applied for patents for. So there is IP underneath it all. We're also, our custody, our wallet is really, really proprietary and we're very proud of it. And lastly, we're chain agnostic so we can work on Ethereum, on Flow, XRPL, any others, and we're all onboarding them as we go. So let's talk a little bit more about the Barbie and Balmain auction. Can you describe what it is and what happened in terms of just the the live event and the auction itself? Sure. Originally, Mattel and, and Balmain wanted to auction off three pieces that were created by Olivier. And we were going to do a white label, a site for them. But we... And to their credit, they were completely open to this. We said, we think there's a bigger opportunity than just selling three NFTs. We think there's a way for you to onboard your fans into the world of NFTs without any additional effort required on your part. And that's when we came up with the idea of giving away 5,000 NFTs. And those NFTs, as soon as we listed them, the sign up, which was an 
some crazy hour, they were gone in two hours. And we ended up signing many, many more accounts because the demand was so high. So there was real scarcity, even in 5,000, the demand was enormous. That sign up was for the event itself, where we basically enabled Balmond and Mattel not to get lost at sea because this was their moment and they can talk about their brand and their inspiration. And it wasn't a highly produced event. It was just a way to showcase the NFT and make people feel included. So as soon as that event was over, we opened up the auction. It lasted three or four days. And the amount of engagement we got was tremendous. And I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about the numbers, but let's just say that so many people visited our site that we were validated with our approach. And we <laughs> think that many of these people were not crypto native. They were people who had maybe created a Coinbase account in order to participate in our auction. And it was highly engaging. So from a brand standpoint, there was no paid media. This was all earned. It was a press release. The New York Times picked up the story that ignited everything. It ignited conversations in social media, Balmain, Mattel Barbie, and Mint NFT. We all engaged in that and generated enough excitement to have unprecedented levels of traffic come to our site. And it was a win-win-win for everybody. So Mint NFT is not only a marketplace, but it's also a premium studio. So working with Barbie and Balmain, work with them to release this really successful auction. When you talk to brands and when you're working with them, how many really understand the community aspect of Web3? How much do you have to educate them? It really depends upon the brands. A lot of them, we're trying to position ourselves as that trusted guide into this world. There are many brands that are pretty sophisticated. And I think that actually Mattel was pretty sophisticated. They were really smart. They had a successful Hot Wheels campaign. They were pretty early with this. So I don't mean to take any shine away from them. We owe them enormous amounts because they were such a progressive partner. So they were pretty smart. There are a lot of brands that are curious and want to learn as much as possible. So it takes a lot of time to educate people. And there are two things that happen. So on one side, there's what's already happened from the crypto native side. And there are certain rules that you must follow or otherwise you're going to get canceled. And then there's the mainstream brand side, which is like, huh? Discord? What? Twitter spaces? And those two seemingly feel like they're at opposite ends. And what we think, what we're trying to do is build that bridge between the two so that everybody wins. Let's talk about the things that can get you canceled in Web3. Well, certainly first is the money grab. It's so easy to see that people are showing up just to make money and they don't care. So that's number one. Number two, it's the rug pull. It's the fake ones that are gonna take the money and run. That's worse than making money, right? Number three, it's the piracy. It's the counterfeit. It's the fakes. There's an artist who was fairly well known and found, I think it was 123 
fake versions of their work on OpenSea. And to me, that's one of the things that is both a positive and a negative. If there are people willing to counterfeit, that must mean there's real value there. But on the other side, there are a lot of people who are going to get hurt by it. And it might stunt the growth because people are only going to focus on the fakes and not the real stuff. And that's why the brands are very, very interested in having more assurance that there is going to be brand safety. So those are some. The others is, you know, when you're trying to just to make money and don't want to play by the rules, then community is unimportant. So you're just there showing up. But what value can you add to the development of NFTs in Web3? You have to bring something to the table. And most rooms that I've been in, it's really the community aspect. It's unreal. It's so strong and supportive about each other. And in this day and age of hate and polarization, when you go into these rooms, it's all love, support, and brotherhood. So you got to provide utility. You got to be inclusive. You got to have a roadmap. You have to give back. There are so many aspects that just call for good business. And I believe that the rules that are established in the crypto native space of NFTs are actually the rules that should govern business in general. It's interesting because the community, because they're owners of these NFTs, you start getting consumers that are actually brand ambassadors because now they own the NFTs. Now they're talking to everyone about it because they're so excited about it and they feel like they're part of it and they feel like an owner of it. Do you feel like this is the next wave of marketing for brands? Absolutely. You look at whether you like the artwork of Bored Apes or not, it's really irrelevant. It's really what the artwork stands for. And that's branding. To have that club, that membership, that affiliation or that affinity, that's what every marketer is going for. How to engage more deeply with your fans, with your consumers. And I think that's why there is such an urgency for everybody to adopt to this ever-changing world. If you get left behind, it's really hard to play catch-up. As you're helping brands think about and build their communities, besides NFTs, what other factors or components are you working to help them develop? Well, the truth of the matter is most of the brands we will work with or are going to work with they already have communities. Problem is many of them are done through social media or customers, but a lot of them are not direct to consumer. So many of the studios, for instance, when they sell their movies, they have to go through Apple. They have to go through AMC theaters. They have to go through third parties and first party data, direct relationship with consumer is where the future is at. I mean, has been. So really, to be able to transact directly with your community is the most important thing. So NFTs are a way to have a built-in user base, but not have direct access to them, to start collecting them and to start uniting them and empowering them and deploying them. I love that. Yeah, I want to mull on that and think through it a bit more. I like how it's such a good pathway to, I guess, what brands are already trying to do. Have you also been thinking about social tokens? So not only membership, but 
joint ownership in the brand? And if so, how have those conversations with brands been going? Well, we want to be really careful because having an NFT as a digital asset, as a collectible, is something that seems to be pretty acceptable. Having fractionalized ownership can get you, take you down a road that leads straight to the SEC. So we think there's enough opportunity with doing NFTs without having that problem crop up for us. It's still blue sky. So we're focused in on helping brands unite with their communities. So on that note, Teddy, can you share a bit about kind of the roadmap, uh, upcoming either collaborations or features you can talk about for Mint NFT? We just finished. We're in the middle of signing deals and doing partnerships. We've had a bunch of protocols reach out to us wanting to partner, which is really amazing. We've had a bunch of marketplaces reach out and want to adopt our technology. We're still so early. I don't mean to sound like the authority or the expert. I'm just the guy who has a dream. Really, I came aboard almost one year ago because my partner, James Sun, didn't know me, but we had hundreds of friends in common. He reached out to me on LinkedIn and asked me to be an advisor. And I joined as an advisor, but ended up spending so much time that I ended up joining full-time as co-founder. And we only launched officially a couple of weeks ago. So there's a lot of work to be done and I can't wait to be able to share more, but we're just too early. That's fair. So taking a step back, given you're such an experienced industry executive coming from entertainment and media, and over the years, we know that you've been advising companies, as you said, on the cutting edge of technology from VR, AR to AI, and now into Web3. So I'm curious from your perspective, what are some things that you're seeing that are really exciting to you? Or on the flip side, things that you feel like have not been solved yet that you'd love for people to work on? Well, I have to say, you talked about SM Entertainment and you mentioned some groups that they had launched, but they launched a group called ESPA that is probably the first true metaverse group in the world. And it's amazing because Mr. Suman Lee, who is the godfather of K-pop, he literally invented this genre with the hopes of going global creating this formula that taking songwriters from around the world, auditioning talent from around the world, putting all the pieces together. And he has created over the last 20 years or more, the deepest roster of talent in the business. So for years, he's been talking about incredible dreams and visions. He's a engineer by training. He's a performer. And he created this group, ESPA. And he said, within one year, I'm going to create this group that will become number one. I was like, okay, whatever. But what he did was each of the four members of the group each have an avatar. And that avatar, they live in this world where each of us have an avatar. And that avatar is created by the data we upload to social media. Now, of course, that data that we upload is truly a distortion of ourselves, right? So he's created this parallel universe and every song has some meaning to it. And he created episode one, Black Mamba, which was 
part video game, part webtoon, part film, part action movie, part game. And it was mind blowing. And these four young women, they performed at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. They have gone number one. And that is what the future looks like. This multimedia experience that extends from the past totally into the metaverse has been personified by this visionary, Mr. Lee and SM Entertainment. So that is one of the trends that I'm seeing that I'm really excited about. There was a K-pop group, BTS, that tried to launch an NFT. And there was an outrage because I think the community didn't really understand NFTs and thought it was a cash grab. So there are a lot of misconceptions about Web3, about crypto, about NFTs, and the communities that these brands are bringing on might misunderstand what the brands are doing. So how do brands circumvent those perceptions? Before you can have a solution, you have to have education and illumination. So there's always that delicate balance between the rush to market and knowing your audience and understanding whether they're ready or not. The largest pushback is generally about, of course, the cash grab, but it's about the ecological impact of NFTs. And the idea is actually, if you use, for instance, we use Flow, the amount of energy it takes to generate one of these NFTs pales in comparison. It's like a blip. And actually for a music fan, for instance, the creation of a t-shirt that they buy, driving to a concert, the electricity used at the concert, far more detrimental than the generation of one of these NFTs. So part of it is just education and so much that's happened is sensational in terms of reporting. The incredible amounts of money that people got for his creation, the amounts of money that have disappeared and people ran off with. And so those stories get the headlines. And that'll all melt away over time. You talk about Mint NFT solving a lot of the onboarding and user experience problems with just NFTs in general. And it's very obvious why you guys chose Flow. And just to explain to the audience what Flow is, Dapper Labs, when they first started, created the first NFT, which is CryptoKitties, they experienced a lot of problems with the Ethereum, whether it's high transaction costs, whether it's breaking the network because there's too many transactions, or even the climate change thing we talked about. So they started their own blockchain flow, which is runs NBA Top Shop, right? And it allows you to actually, even without having to buy crypto, it allows you to basically buy the NFT just with your credit card, things like that. So it makes a lot of sense why you guys have chosen flow. Why have you started moving off of flow and starting to branch out to other blockchains? It's not that we moved off of flow. We have a theory that the world of NFTs is it doesn't matter what the underlying technology is. People are going to care about the community and the collectability and the durability. So we love Dapper Labs because they have the same mindset as we do about making things easy. When a transaction costs pennies versus a transaction on the Ethereum would might be $300, costs more than the actual NFT itself. So those are the kinds of things that we think from a consumer standpoint are more important. We are working so Dapper Labs invested in our company, right? 
Now, they invested in our company, as did Ripple, knowing that we weren't going to be a one protocol company, that we were going to onboard a lot of different ones. And I believe the reason they thought that is because my partner is a genius. He's really smart. And he founded a site called Drama Beans. And Drama Beans is a site for English language fans of Korean dramas. And he founded it 14 years ago and organically grew it to over 140 million. So here's a guy who understands community. He's a geek in that he's an engineer. He's a fan of content because it was his love of K-dramas. And he's an entrepreneur. And he was uh, one of the few finalists, Asian contestants on The Apprentice. So he is the real deal. And he made a lot of these relationships and people just bought into his vision. And it is a match of technology, community, and content. And when I joined him, I made a vow. It's less of me, more of him. That I am here at this stage in my life. This is not about my dream and my vision. This is about supporting his vision and doing everything I can to make it come true. So you are an advisor to seems like more than 20 companies and you've talked to a lot of different companies. And for some reason, this conversation as an advisor with James Sun caused you to actually go full time into Mint NFT. What was originally James pitched to you and what did he ask of you to join his company? Well, he wanted some credibility from a content side because he was trying to aggregate content. And originally he had thought about Korean content. And it's very difficult being in the U.S. trying to engender kind of trust and close deals in Korea. And while as we continued down this path, we realized there was a lot of problems within the emerging industry that we were solving by developing our feature set is less relevant about where that content comes from. And it's more relevant about onboarding the mainstream through these, making the technology so easy to use. So when you do a startup, you pivot, you pivot, you refine, you pivot. It's taken us a year. It's been a year and we've found our superpower, we believe. So as you're onboarding these brands, what are you identifying as targets? What are the factors that they need to have to be good partners to create these NFTs on your platform? Well, of course, they need to be a credible brand. They have to have a history. They have to be willing to innovate and experiment. And they have to be open to sharing with their communities. And they have to have a time horizon that's not immediate. They have to have the foresight and the vision to understand that this is a process, it's a journey, and it's not an overnight sensation. And so we really need to be aligned with brands that understand the value proposition that we deliver. There are a lot of great brands that we're not the right company for, that's for sure. But we are pretty fortunate to be having a pipeline that sees the value in what we do and want to work with us. That's amazing. Actually, I'd love to pull it back a little bit I know we quickly glossed over your very storied career, but going back to just working in Hollywood and 
having worked a lot in the Asian American communities, I'd love for you to share a little bit about perhaps some of the challenges that you've had to overcome. I know you talked a bit about, oh, it was not easy in any way. And I feel like you're just really humble and don't want to go into a lot of details. But I think for our listeners, you know, because a, a lot of our podcast fans are people perhaps around our age, have been working in corporate America, have perhaps hit some of the same challenges that you have faced and looking at new opportunities. But at the same time, I do think a lot of the experiences and nuggets of information can be very helpful. Just maybe one or two points about just how you have overcome conflicts and challenges that have arisen in your career. I know that's pretty general, but... (laughs) I get it. And I don't want to be the guy who talked about having to walk three miles to school and all that. I mean, times are so different now and then. And it's so funny because the last two years, violence against Asians is just crazy. Yep. And it's been unleashed in such a powerful way. It's just brought to the surface what so many people had been feeling and didn't really talk about. So I come from the day and age where there was no crazy rich Asians. There was no parasite. There was none of this. There was no YouTube with all the YouTube influencers that are Asian American. It was a world of TV characters who played opium drug dealers and waiters and houseboys. And so when you walk into a room, what do they see? They only see your ethnicity. They don't see anything else. And the problem is back then, you can feel it, the dismissiveness. You can feel it. It takes special people to overlook that and see past that, right? So that being said, I want to say that in my history, Hollywood is an equal opportunity discriminator. They will pick on, take advantage of, and shunt anybody at any moment. Whatever gender, whatever color, whatever race, it doesn't matter. It's a cruel, cruel world that everybody chases. And there's so much desperation for that five minutes of fame. And so I was one of those guys and I wasn't in it for the fame. I was in it for the excitement of actually being involved in creation. So I'll tell you, Harvard Business School was the best thing that ever happened to me because when I walked into a room, I was no longer just the Asian dude. I was the creative from Harvard Business School. I was like a new accessory. I was like a Birkin bag for some of my bosses that I could be paraded around. And I was willing to do that. And by the way, back in the day, I was not woke. I was just trying to survive. I did not identify as Asian. I identified as me. And I needed to have an awakening. So nobody should look at me as a champion. Nobody should look at me as a hero or a role model. I was just a guy trying to make it. We live in such a different world than we were during your time and even during my time. I almost envy the kids today because they have all this confidence that I feel like I didn't have. And I'm sure it was even worse for you. And I just went to a K-pop concert recently. And the fact that we have 
people from all different backgrounds going to watch Asian males for their sex appeal and singing all their songs. It's just like a really different world that we live in. And we talk about Hollywood being this really cruel world, but today with NFTs and brands basically building this collaborative community, seems like it's really just a different world, right? And how do you feel about being in Web3 and the energy in the community and the, just the collaboration in this industry? Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Like I said, when I go into a Twitter space or a clubhouse, there's just different level of tolerance and empathy that goes on. People are vulnerable. People share. When I grew up in Hollywood, it was put on your armor, fake it till you make it, pretend like you have no problems, and everybody was broken. And if you found somebody that you could lean on, that was great. It was much harder. Well, I'm not saying much harder for me, but I did feel isolated. And that's probably a more of a function of how I grew up. So it was nothing new for me. And it's funny, if I had a high school reunion and I actually shared what I felt and everybody was shocked. They were like, you? You were like in the middle of everything. You were popular. You were doing everything. And it was just, you know, I think a lot of young people I talked to in Hollywood and elsewhere, the imposter syndrome and the putting on, faking it till you make it is something that a lot of people relate to. And the beauty of Web3, the beauty of digital media is the distribution channels are so wide and so broad that there's room for everybody. I laugh about broadcasting. How broad is it really? It was limited to three networks. With the internet, we can reach every corner of the world and any one person can be as niche as you want, but find millions and millions of millions who could relate to their story and their experience. And that's the power of where we're going. It's beautiful. I want to ask a meta question. You use stories so well in your answers. Was there an origin for this? And how do you organize your thoughts into stories? I'm speechless. I have no idea how to answer that. It just comes to me. <laughs> when people ask me what I do for a living, sometimes I say I'm a producer. Sometimes I say I'm an executive. But really, I'm a storyteller. I love telling other people's stories, whether it's a company, a startup, a brand, a founder, a team. I just try to find what's special about each and every opportunity in person and bring that to the surface. Is there anything, Teddy, looking back that you would have done differently, given what you know now? I would have become a Christian long before I did. Mm. I went through so many highs and lows in my life because I was filled with shame as an Asian, because I felt like I didn't belong. I held so much in. I really was broken. I was always hungry and I didn't know what I was looking for. My personal life, my first marriage was a mess because of me. And I hit rock bottom from a personal perspective. You can have on the surface everything that everybody or anybody would want. But unless you have a strong personal foundation, it's meaningless. And after my first divorce, my life completely changed. I felt like I hit rock bottom. That helped propel me in new directions and new career directions. 
it helped me connect to being Asian again because uh, I was not married to an Asian woman. So I wouldn't do anything different, but I wish I was wiser and learned my lessons. And I used to be more about me first. And it's much more liberating to be helping other people and knowing that I'm not the guy in control. Can you speak a bit more to your personal foundation and how you built it up and what makes up that foundation? Well, when you hit rock bottom, it's easier to rebuild. It's painful, but I needed a new operating system. And that was really learning how to love myself and learning how to genuinely love other people. And I met my wife and she taught me a lot. And through her, her family led us to becoming Christians. And I'll tell you what the significance of that is. And that is, I'm not the guy in charge. There's a higher power up there. And that takes a lot of pressure off of yourself or somebody to know that. And that I don't have to be perfect because I'm not perfect. And by trying to pretend I'm perfect, I'm fooling myself. And if I can accept who I am and what my weaknesses are, I can actually get stronger. So that's one of the weird things about it. And it just opened my eyes to being far more open and being of service to others. And because of that, I've experienced so many rewards and riches beyond my imagination. So planting those seeds, you reap what you sow. And I think giving back is something that I learned to do, not for the looks of it, but for my own mental health and my own salvation. You basically tell us that you aren't a hero, but for us, people our age, Asian American high achievers, you actually are a hero to me and I think a lot of my cohort because of your authenticity and vulnerability. And before I end the podcast, I just wanted to let you know that one of my favorite all-time podcast episodes that I share with a lot of my friends is the one that you were on with David Chang, the Momofuku chef. He had made fun of best of the best in 80s martial arts film, and he was making fun of the Asian American people in the film. And you emailed him and you called him a bully. And you came out on the podcast to tell your story and about your dad. And so I just wanted to let the audience know that they need to listen to that because it's a really impactful podcast episode. So going back to Mint NFT, now that you've launched Barbie and Balmain NFT auction, what are the next steps for Mint NFT? It's a race. The world is changing so fast. This is our moment in time. I hope to come back a year from now and have good news or to tell you what happened, but the world changes so quickly and I can't tell you what's going to be next. I can't imagine. Well, I can imagine, but it's up to me and the team and the rest of the world to just make it come true. And I got to tell you, I love the journey. I love the uncertainty. I have not done anything in the last 10, 15 years that I truly can say I had experience at or I was an expert. Every day I am learning and I am around a lot of young people who I'm learning so much from and they're looking up to me and man, it's just incredible. So I'm no longer wrapped up in destinations. I'm happy with the journey. It's probably going to go on and on and on. And if, if I'm lucky, so I'm less preoccupied about where it's going. I'm more enjoying today and tomorrow 
and excited for what unfolds. And I'm excited to work with Mint NFT. Where do I go to find you guys? Our website is mintnft.com and we're on all the social channels, but we'll be coming after you also. You don't always have to look for us. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate your generosity, Teddy. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Teddy. Hey, everyone. Thanks for making it to the end of the episode. You can find show notes, links, and contact info for us and our guests at our website, willandlee.show. We love feedback, so please feel free to drop us a note with any thoughts or suggestions. Lastly, if you like what you heard, we'd really appreciate you adding ratings to our episodes. Thanks for listening. Until next time.